everything that moves. I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. Touchdown. Welcome once again to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. I'm your host, Fran Duffy. Here with me, as always, here at the Novacare Complex, it's late on a Tuesday night. The grinder himself from NFL Films, senior producer Greg Cosell. Greg, it's another Tuesday night. It's week five. It is, and the Eagles are 3-1, and one, which, hey, if we said that before the season, most people would have been happy. And that's what's funny. We were talking about that actually earlier on the Eagles Insider podcast with Chris McPherson and Bo Wolf. how, you know, obviously the Eagles are 3-1, and one, I still think that if, let's say, Riley Cooper catches that ball at the end of the game, I still think people would still be up, upset here in Philadelphia. That even even with the 4-0 record, right, right. I think just because of how the season has gone so far, we haven't really kind of hit that groove yet offensively, uh, you know, and really haven't had that kind of signature game yet, people would still be a little uneasy. Yeah, and that was Nick Foles' best throw of the game, by the way. No question. That was a big-time throw in a critical situation. Yeah, no, no question about it. So, Greg... The first question I wanted to ask you, and this is something that obviously you've been watching NFL NFL All-22 tape for years and years, you know, going on three decades now, right? Uh, unfortunately, yes. There you go. Yes. Sorry, sorry to, uh, to date you there. But uh, what is the overall effect? You can have as many skill position players, you know, at running back, at wide receiver, at tight end. If you don't have quality O-line play on a consistent basis, how much can that affect how well your offense produces? Well, it really can impact your passing game in particular. I mean, we've seen how it impacts the run game with uh, with Shady McCoy and the fact that the last two weeks have not been very good in terms of yardage in the run game. And I think that's probably somewhat self-evident. But I think where it really impacts you is in the pass game. And here's the reason. When you have to protect or compensate for your offensive line, there are certain things you have to do, and they all involve – adding extra bodies into pass protection because you can't live on three-step drops in the NFL. You are going to be in third and longer yardage, and you're going to have to have five-step, seven-step drops where it takes a little longer to get the ball out. We know with Chip Kelly's offense, what does he like to do? What's the foundation in the pass game? He wants five receivers, the five eligible receivers, into routes. If you have to protect an O-line, and we actually saw this uh, in the second half last week, Fran, where the tight end would stay in, the back would stay in, to chip, to help with the, the offensive tackles on the outside, you are now reducing the number of eligible receivers in your passing game. That's an advantage before the snap of the ball to the defense. So that's the main reason how it affects your passing game. The NFL is a numbers game in almost all areas. And if you reduce the number of eligible receivers – advantage defense and especially with a team like the Eagles where so many of their big plays require space require room yep. for some of these skill position players to, to you know to make a, to gain positive yardage and when you've got offensive linemen that aren't as mobile as the guys that were ahead of them originally that's going to affect you as well the way you call the game and it's look it stresses the defense when you're able to get five receivers out and spread the field horizontally that's the space you're referring to spacing concepts we know how the eagles at their best how they do that and they create wide open areas at times in the middle of the field they do that because they're stretching the field wider and wider literally to the 53 and a third yard limit, which is the width of the field. If you have to keep in your back 
and or your tight end, you lose the ability to stretch the field like that. And that's the big, big problem for a Chip Kelly offense due to an offensive line that's struggling. So overall, obviously, we had we saw four guys out of position or in new starting roles here on Sunday. Uh, what was your overall take, really, on the three backup guys, those three interior guys? Obviously, Matt Tobin, he got his first career start. Uh, Chip Kelly talked about how he got dinged up early, so that kind of affected the way he could move and yep. get out in the perimeter. Uh, David Mulk, he got he saw extensive action against Washington. This was his first career start uh, out in Levi Stadium, and then uh, and Dennis Kelly got obviously got some some more playing time at right guard. Uh, what, what was your take on those three guys? And I think they struggled. And, and I think, look, Tobin, uh, you saw a lot more of him in, in training camp in the preseason than I did, and you had indicated you thought he had some athleticism. Maybe the injury impacted that. He didn't play the game athletically. Uh, Mulk is a smaller center to begin with. He's not unathletic, but I think he struggles with power. And I think he really struggles against odd fronts, three, four fronts, which, of course, the last two weeks, that's what they saw. So he had big nose tackles lined up right on him. An odd front has, has a, a defensive tackle or nose tackle right over the center. I think he struggles with that a little bit. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it, 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 to be nice, it's a work in progress. And I think you have to give these guys an opportunity, particularly Mulk. He's going to be in the lineup now for what, the next five or six weeks, I guess. Yeah, no question. And, and Mathis, is, they're saying he could be out for another few weeks as well. So, right. You know, so, I mean, you, I mean this, got these two spots open. Tobin is likely to – I would assume Tobin will continue at left guard. I believe they, uh, Today, we're, we're filming this Tuesday night. Tuesday practice, he was with the first team at left guard. And he wouldn't have been if they didn't want him to play left guard this week. I would, I would imagine that to right. be the case. Right. I would imagine that to be the case. So, uh, you know, moving on, obviously defensively, just another, you know, a really good performance. They got put in a number of tough yes. spots uh, just against the run game because a lot of people, you know, start talking to me on Twitter and obviously we start seeing a lot of, we hear a lot of the, the callers on sports radio uh, really just came at the, at, at the defense and stopping the run. What was your take on the, on the run game? Well, you know what? There were a few big plays by Gore, and then there were a lot of little plays, which they count. I mean, uh, the 49ers did have, and this includes Kaepernick, they did have 17 runs of five-plus yards. And, in fact, the 49ers, they went back to sort of their, their foundation because Gore had 24 runs in the game. 23 of those runs were out of base personnel, nine out of heavy with six offensive linemen. So the 49ers kind of went back to their foundation, and they did have success. Um Gore is not necessarily what you'd call a big play explosive back. You're not necessarily going to see 60-yard touchdowns. But he, he's a master at getting skinny through small cracks. And you think you have him bottled up, and all of a sudden it's second and five. And five yards is a good run in the NFL. First down, you'll take that every time. Every time. So I don't think it was the kind of performance when, when I was finished watching the tape where I felt like, wow, their defense didn't play well. But yet – the 49ers were able to sustain at some key moments offense running the football. One of the things that I found that they did really, really well, and I'm talking, I'm speaking to the 49ers offense schematically, was on run action. What they did was obviously, you know, you got the they did a lot of counter plays, a lot of those misdirection plays, and the the receivers on the outside and the tight ends actually on the line of scrimmage would run out and run pass routes, and the second level defenders on Philadelphia would run with those guys. I remember a couple plays where. 
Trent Cole was matched up on Vernon Davis, and he had his back turned because he's run, he, you know he's got to worry about Vernon Davis. So he's he's running with Vernon Davis. His back's to the play, and Frank Gore's running five or six yards downfield. It was really interesting to see that they were able to pull that off a couple times, and it's a it's a tough situation to be in because you have to worry about the quarterback obviously running. You have to worry about those dangerous threats on the outside, and then you got Frank Gore and Carlos Hyde, two powerful backs. And I think as a coaching staff, this is where coaching comes in because Colin Kaepernick, and we don't know we're doing this Tuesday night. We're not sure who's going to play quarterback for the Rams on Sunday at this moment. But you have to be careful as a coaching staff because Colin Kaepernick is a quarterback who leaves the pocket very early. At the first sign of opposing color of an Eagle jersey, Kaepernick's out of the pocket. And quarterbacks like that, they can stress you in some areas, as we know, but they also leave some throws on the field that and I'm not suggesting Sean Hill or Austin Davis is going to make those throws, uh, but more veteran quarterbacks who are more pocket aware and have better command in the pocket will make those throws. So I think the Eagles defense, for the most part, is an improving unit. And they're getting. And don't forget, Michael Kendricks has not played. Uh, now, I thought that there were snaps in which both, believe it or not, Casey Matthews and Acho flashed. Yeah. The, the, this was not a game where that I, – I don't think that linebacker position next to Ryan's was a weakness or a liability this week at all. No, I would agree. And it's funny, Bill Davis was actually talking about it today in his press conference. Those inside runs – they, the inside runs wasn't what killed them. It was really just those perimeter runs. Yep. They, they ran a lot of those sweeps, those counter plays, those misdirection plays. Uh, obviously, the quarterback design runs. We saw uh, Colin Kaepernick pick up a key first down on third down. Uh, the Eagles played were in dime. They played a lot of dime. And on they the and they had everybody packed inside with the double A gap. Yep. And I think the 49ers anticipated that, and that was actually a great call to get Kaepernick on a true quarterback sweep to the outside. Yep. And Trent Cole, he he, try, he almost got there, but obviously, you know, sometimes they get you, and that was a, a great play call that uh you know they, they got you on that one um moving on here to the 49ers defense uh we talked about obviously the issues that the Eagles had moving the ball but defensively I mean this 49ers team showed something that we really hadn't seen yet this year they had one of their most disciplined games that we saw on tape yeah we charted it in passing situations past drops they played 77 percent zone that's what we charted and they were so good with their discipline in their zone concepts, it always seemed as if they had a defender in the middle of the field. The Eagles did not complete one crossing route in this wow. game. Yep. And that is an absolute staple of the Eagles' pass game, those sort of mesh concepts, those crossing routes at, at different levels. They did not complete one. And the 49ers clearly had a great feel for the route concepts. A great example of that was the Bethay interception because that was actually a staple Eagles play with a bubble screen to the left to pull the defense and then to hit Selleck coming from the right on the over route. Yep. And Eric Reed did not bite really hard at all on, on the movement to the left with the bubble screen action uh, with Matthews, I think, on sort of the orbit motion behind the quarterback. And he was, and, and he was sitting there, and, and Nick did not feel comfortable throwing that over route to Selleck. And then he moved and did something that is always taught to a quarterback. You never throw down the middle deep late. Good things don't happen when you do no. that. Right, exactly. And Bethay in particular, I thought he played just an excellent game. I thought he may have been their defensive MVP, really. I mean, Justin Reed? Smith, had, no, uh, Antoine Bethay. Oh, I thought Antoine Bethay was phenomenal he in this was, game. He yeah. was, it was one of the best games I've seen from him in some time. Um. So moving on here to the to the Rams, what obviously they had the week off last week. They were one of the teams with the early bye. 
what have you seen from them offensively? Obviously, they lost Sam Bradford. Uh, Austin Davis has got the majority of the snaps at quarterback. What have you seen from Austin Davis? You know, I've liked Austin Davis in the two games I've seen him. He's been very efficient. Uh, I think he, he doesn't have a big arm, but it's a little better than you think. Uh, he's made some deep throws. He's, he's willing to pull the trigger on throws at the intermediate and deeper levels. And, but yet, he's not a reckless thrower by any means. And they're big at the wide receiver position with Brian Quick and with Kenny Britt. And I don't know if Tavon Austin will be back this week. Uh, I know that uh, he missed a game and they had the bye week, but he presents a certain set of problems. It could be a really cool matchup with Boykin and Austin in the slot. Two quick little guys. That could be a lot of fun to watch. But at their core, they're a running football team. And Zach Stacy is their premier back. And then they used Benny Cunningham as well. And in their last game, they had this little free agent from Tulsa, Trey Watts. Right, yep. Uh, who is was a fascinating player to me. In some ways, he had Darren Sproles-like qualities. He's not Sproles. Right. But he had those kinds of qualities. And it'll be interesting to me to see if they continue to use him in that kind of role. Yeah, and he's getting playing time over the other Trey. At right, who was that, inactive. Uh, we like Trey Mason. Yeah, out of Auburn, who was their... Uh, second or third round pick, I believe. So. Right, second. I uh, yeah, maybe third. Yeah, he was he was one of, you know a second day's pick for them, uh, and obviously he just hasn't been able to to crack that lineup. Uh, talk about really the job that that coaching staff has done with a guy like Austin Davis and kind of tailoring to his uh, to his strengths so far. Yeah, believe it or not, their offense has not been uh, particularly with Davis. I mean, they they scored points against the Dallas Cowboys two weeks ago. Uh, I think what you have with Davis is a quarterback that. He's a complimentary player, and if you can run the football effectively and you can use base personnel, base formations, create some opportunities in your pass game, out of that, he can be a very effective player. I mean, there's a lot of quarterbacks in this league, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a knock on the quarterbacks, but most quarterbacks need a run game. Most quarterbacks need a complete offense. There's very, very few, very few that can just win the games by themselves week after week after week. Those guys are superstars. So when you, when you say a quarterback is quote-unquote a system quarterback, whatever that means, and I know it, it's kind of a derogatory comment in a lot of people's minds. The game mind. manager. Right, the yeah. game manager. Yeah. You know, most – I mean, Eli Manning has two Super Bowls. You know, Eli Manning needs a running game to be an effective player. That's – the reality of it. Yep. And, you know, obviously we look at Nick Foles and the success he had last year. We were the number one rushing offense in the NFL. Absolutely. So, you know, you need that kind of uh, running game to sustain offense consistently. Absolutely. And they're, they've been able to do that the last two weeks. They've been able to run the ball more effectively than they did, I believe, week one when they lost. Uh, obviously, they lost to the Cowboys as well, but not not because of their offense. Greg, obviously this, this St. Louis Rams team, while offensively, they, they, there are some storylines there. Defense is the story with this team. Obviously, a very dangerous front four. Uh, some talent on the back end and at the second level at linebacker, at safety. TJ McDonald, Alec Ogletree is an athletic guy who can run. Uh, talk about their defense and their personnel. What, what are the, the major players? Obviously, Robert, Robert Quinn is right. the guy. Well, amazingly enough, they only have one sack in three games. But yet, if you just look at the talent in this group, and last year Quinn led the NFL in sacks, this is a really talented Fast defense. That's what stands out. This defense is fast. Now, it's a new coordinator in Greg Williams who mixes and matches concepts quite a bit, and I think they're still learning all this. But as a group, when you look at this front seven, they have Quinn at right defensive end. Now, Long will be out. 
but they have Brockers. You know, we talked about David Mulk. Brockers is 6'6", 325. I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up. And he's essentially their one technique, which means he lines up over uh, either the right or left shoulder of the offensive center. And, and he is a big man who can move. Yeah. A really, really good player kind of lost on a defensive line due to the fact that Quinn led the league in sacks last year. And Kendall Langford is a very good D tackle. They have Laurinaitis, and they have arguably, and he's much improved, arguably the most physically imposing linebacker in the NFL in Alec Ogletree. He is just, I remember watching him at Georgia and just jaw-dropping athleticism. And he's 245 pounds. Exactly. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. He's 6'3", 245. His athleticism is off the charts, and he's a better player this year. He's taking on blocks better. He's playing a little more to his size. Now, I still think you can catch him mentally at times, but he's far, far improved from his rookie season. And another guy who kind of fits that same bill, obviously a different position, but uh, a second-round pick, I believe, from a couple years ago, safety T.J. McDonald. From USC. Exactly. Another guy who's a toolsy guy, big kid who can run and has that kind of movement skills, uh, but discipline and and technique were some of those issues coming out of college. And they try to use him in a way where they can take advantage of his long strides and his movement because you wouldn't call him explosive in terms of quick twitch, but at 6'3", 220, he moves. He moves because he can cover a lot of ground and they get him up at the line of scrimmage a lot. Uh, They get him as, as a blitzer at times. And, uh, and he shows up on film because he is long and rangy and is a long strider. These are my notes. I've got my notes in front of me. T.J. McDonald plays up near the line of scrimmage often, active player, physical, often plays over the tight end, used in coverage because of his movement skills. There you go. So I, McDonald's a guy that I, I personally was not a huge fan of coming out because he had that athleticism, but the discipline wasn't there, and it seems like he, with more experience he's starting to grow into that role. And i got to tell you, watching the first three games – I've been really impressed with Rodney McLeod. And, you know, he's not a name. Uh, And I I just think when you put on the film and you watch this defense, he flashes. He has good speed, good movement, good range. I've been very impressed with him. They've got... Just just looking through the roster, they've got a number of guys that I just remember going through. You know, obviously both of us follow the draft process, and you know I watch a lot of these guys in college. But you know, Maurice Alexander was another one of those guys, like McDonald, a big kid who can. He's move the Boise Utah, State kid, Utah, Utah State. Utah, Utah State. State. Yep. Okay. Lamarcus Joyner is obviously their nickel. He's corner. their nickel. Yeah. Yes. Their nickel corner coming off the bench, and oh, by the way, uh, Aaron Donald coming in off the bench, who seven tackles on the year, but five of them have come for ta- you know, come for yes, loss. And yes, yes, and he, he, he tends to play mostly in the nickel, yep. uh, but he does get some snaps in the base. Yep, and then we, Ethan Westbrook's another rookie yep. who's, who's rotating in there. Uh, William Ray- Hayes has been a – Eugene Sims. These guys yep. have all been good players. For the, they When Long is healthy, and he won't be this Sunday, they have an incredibly deep defensive line with good players. Yeah, they rotate a lot up front. Uh, Ray Ray Armstrong is a guy who intrigues me. He was a, a, high, a, a highly rated recruit coming out of high school. He was a safety he in was Miami, a was he not? safety in Miami, yeah. yes. And how has his transition been to linebacker? He, well, he doesn't play a lot. In this, you know, but I watched him. I watched his team in the preseason, too, and he played a lot in the preseason. I thought he, he made a very interesting transition. I mean, I think there's a, a chance for this kid down the road once he, he learns the position. Okay, and so then just looking around the rest of this team, uh, the one player that I think obviously is a little bit below the rest, and that's a rookie who's playing outside at cornerback. Truman yes. Johnson's out yes. with injury, e. and that's E.J. Gaines yeah. is the corner out of Mizzou. Uh, a longer kid, obviously, one of those press corners, 
doesn't really move as well as some of these other guys they've got. Janoris Chang is obviously a very, very good player. And I think Gaines right now is still feeling his way through. He gives up a lot of cushion. Yep. And I think he can be attacked with the short, quick passing game. Uh, I think he has a tendency at this point not to have his eyes in the right place. I don't know. Did you watch them against Dallas? Yep. yep. You know, that long touchdown to Des Bryant. For people who saw that play, they might think E.J. Gaines had nothing to do with it, but he was the reason the play happened because he was responsible for Terrence Williams on the crossing route, and he had his eyes in the backfield. And therefore, Williams broke free off the line, and both the backside corner Jenkins, who was playing Brian, and the safety, uh, I think it was McDonald, uh, attacked Williams on the crosser, and that left Bryant free for the touchdown. But it's because E.J. Gaines, and this is very common for young corners, you talk to coaches, they talk about where their eyes are. Yep. And his eyes are in the wrong place. Yeah, the, the eye discipline is, yep. the, is the big Big key phrase, there. big yep. phrase, yes. Uh, this is a big man coverage team. And yep. I would, I would say, obviously they do like to mix things up, but more often than not they're a man coverage team with guys that they've got there with that athleticism with the matchup guy problems we have offensively, that'll be one of the big keys I'm looking forward to in this game is who do they have, who are they going to assign to play against Zach Ertz, who are they going to put in space against uh, against Darren Sproles. Ogletree seems to be the guy that they tend to He's put on guys out of the He's got the athleticism to do it. Yes. Uh, I don't think he has a ton of experience playing true man on tight ends, yep. but he's capable of it physically. Yeah, I think just, you know, and this is obviously, I'm just kind of browsing through here. McDonald seems to be the guy that plays the tight ends more yes, often than yes, not, and yes. Ogletree on the backs more often than not when they yes, go man. So yes. uh, that'll be one of the things I'm very interested to watch as we get to Sunday's game. Yeah, and I think it'll depend too. That now the Eagles have some formation uh, possibilities here because obviously McDonald, are you. Ertz can line up anywhere. Is, can McDonald play man-to-man if he's outside the numbers? You know, that's not something he's used to. Right, no question about it. Okay, so let's let's transition a bit to the rest of the league. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Two rookie quarterbacks that went in the first round this past year, Teddy Bridgewater, Blake Bortles, got to see their first starts this past Sunday. Obviously, Bridgewater left with an injury. What was your take watching those two guys? You can start with Bridgewater. Well, Bridgewater to me was fascinating because – Norv Turner is the offensive coordinator in Minnesota. He's been right. in the league a long time. He has a particular M.O., the way he plays. It's a, it's a lot of run action with your quarterback mostly under center. It's a lot of intermediate and downfield passing. Well, that's not what they did at all in this game, uh, and, and that speaks to coaching and, the, and quality coaching because they essentially put Bridgewater in the shotgun. They did a lot of those read option mesh concepts, and – They got Bridgewater comfortable right away. A lot of short, quick, relatively easy throws by NFL standards. They managed and controlled him beautifully. And I thought North Turner did an outstanding job in getting Bridgewater acclimated. Now, if you just isolate Bridgewater's play, he was very composed, very poised. But you do have to keep in mind that they played arguably one of the three worst defenses in the NFL and that was the Atlanta Falcons. But it was a really positive performance for Bridgewater. Bortles, I thought, actually played well, too. The problem that he faces, and it showed up as the game progressed, is that his O-line was overmatched by the Chargers. And the Chargers started to blitz. They started to do a lot more with games. And as the second half progressed, it became hard for Bortles, really, even to execute the offense. And they were down, so he had a throw. And for the analysts that have been clamoring for Blake Bortles and asking why isn't this kid in the game after how he looked in the preseason, this is why, because they were worried about what this offensive line uh, could potentially do to him down the road. Yeah, and, and 
like I said, through the first half, I thought he looked pretty comfortable. They did try to keep him under control as well with a lot of quick throws. Even on third and long, they did not want him with seven-step drops having to sit in the pocket and try to get the ball down the field. So I think both coaching staffs actually did a very good job. Turner, I was really impressed with in handling Bridgewater. Not really until the fourth quarter did you see sort of the under center play action, deep dig kind of throw, and he made a great throw, you know, about an 18-yard dig to Patterson, and that's the North Turner offense I've seen over the years. But he really handled Teddy Bridgewater so, so well. We talked about it with Bridgewater, and we talked about it earlier with Austin Davis in St. Louis. And that's coaching and how it reflects, oh. obviously how you work with quarterbacks and how you tailor to their strengths. One of the, the cases that I always think of, I always go back to, I believe it was 2011, 2012, uh, Mike McCoy and John Fox and the job that they, they did in Denver with Tim Tebow and Kyle Orton and how they just changed that offense to tailor to Tebow's strengths. It's just one of the most amazing coaching jobs I've seen. Yeah, and now McCoy is in, obviously the head coach in San Diego with Phillip Rivers, who's playing the best quarterback in the NFL right now. But, yeah, they, they they knew what they had and what they didn't have with Tim. You couldn't run an NFL passing game with Tim Tebow. So you had to put him in the gun, and you had to try all the read option stuff, and you had to try to minimize the throws, define easy throws, because he couldn't make a lot of what are really NFL throws. And I'm a big believer. I was very fortunate to get to know Bill Walsh, and I'm a big believer in coaching. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? I didn't know that you know Bill Walsh. Oh, I, I spent wow. about seven or eight different times with Bill Walsh out in California. That's great. I, I did all the listening, believe me. I didn't oh, yeah. have I didn't have much to say. Still, huh? I didn't have much to say at all. That's awesome. And and I read a good part of his his five hundred page book. I particularly the part on quarterbacks, because I really like to evaluate the position. But um, I remember him telling stories about you know when he coached Dan Fouts as an OC in nineteen seventy six, and then when he coached Joe Montana, and how there were some routes that. They didn't run with Joe Montana because he couldn't throw them well. And for people who hear that and say, oh, Joe Montana is the greatest of all time, that's not a knock on Joe Montana. That's what coaching is. You maximize the skill set of the most important position on the field. And that's what Norv Turner did with Teddy Bridgewater. It's not a knock on Teddy Bridgewater. He was able to play at a very, very high level in his first NFL start because of the way he was coached. Exactly right. It's you know it's one of the things that I think gets lost on fans sometimes. And really, we saw it here last year as well where uh, Michael Vick started the season here, and then obviously when Nick Foles jumped in, they did change a lot of the passing schemes that, that they went in. Obviously, it's, you know, a lot of stuff did change, you know, carried over, but they did change a lot of the things that uh, – that Vic threw well that maybe Nick wanted to go towards other concepts. Yeah, you have to play to the strengths of your quarterback and minimize his limitations. Every quarterback, with very, very few exceptions, has a limitation somewhere along the line, okay? And you're not obviously, you know, hey, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning are Hall of Famers, okay? Arguably two of the three or four best quarterbacks who've ever played this game. You're not going to see a whole lot of boot action with those guys. That's just, you know, you're not going to do that. Right. So, you know, you have to play to the strengths and minimize the limitations. That's what coaching is. All right, Greg. I think that'll about, that'll about do it tonight. Uh, before I get to my interview with Tony Pauline, we're going to do some uh, get some late-breaking news here on the NFL draft and uh, some of these prospects coming up. Uh, did you get a chance to watch any college, college ball on Saturday? I watched pretty much all of Florida State and North Carolina State, which okay. was a very intriguing game. And, you know, we all know about Jameis Winston to – to a certain extent, I was actually very interested in watching De- Jacoby Brissett. Yep. And it's funny that we're talking about Bridgewater and now Brissett because, I guess it's Brissett, excuse me. Um, 
a number of years ago when both those players, who were both from Florida, by the way, were going into their senior year in high school, I was fortunate enough to go to an event uh, through Steve Clarkson when he had about 100 high school quarterbacks from Florida. It was actually at the Citrus Bowl in Orlando, and both Bridgewater and Jacoby Brissett were there. And Jacoby Brissett, going into high school as a senior, was 6'4", 235, same as he is now. And this kid threw the ball better than anybody at this event. And Bridgewater, because he's small, Bridgewater's not an imposing, he's not an imposing figure now. But I, I've been following Jacoby Brissett's career ever since, and he went to Florida, and they wanted a runner, so he didn't beat out Jeff Driscoll. Then he transferred to NC State, and now he's the starter, and I guess they're 4-1, and one, and for the most part, he's played very well. And he's he still has another year in college, and I imagine he'll be back for another year in college. He needs it. But he's a big, imposing physical specimen with a big arm. And I'm going to be intrigued to watch his development over the next year and a half. It's always interesting to see some of these guys that transfer from the bigger schools. Because uh, he started at Florida, obviously, and he lost the job to, to Jeff Driscoll, who has not lived up to expectations no, with no. in Gainesville. So uh, it's just really interesting. We've, we've seen it through the years, numerous, numerous times. Obviously, Joe Flacco losing his job, I believe, to Tyler Palco. Tyler Palco, yeah. Yes. So Tyler Palco was a backup with the Chiefs and the Saints, I believe, during before he bowed out. Of well, Pal career. Palco had been there when Flacco got – he had just come off, I think, being the big East freshman of the year, right. and that's when Flacco came in. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's – it's just it's fascinating. I haven't I haven't watched Brissett yet this year. Uh, I did not watch that game. I was watching the Miami Duke game on on Saturday night. A couple other games. I, I what do you think of the freshman game. quarterback for Miami? I'll tell you what he, he he's a true freshman. He he's a true freshman, and he faced some adversity in that game. Obviously, it they downpoured. I think it was midway through the third quarter, midway through the second quarter, and it just the skies just opened up out of nowhere, and he just threw a dime down the field. Uh, you know it. it He's got some tools. I'll be really interested to see how he continues to develop. Obviously, the the player there is a, he's a junior, so he still has another year. Is Duke Johnson, the running back, who uh, really does it all for them as a as a returner, catches the ball out of the backfield, is one of those perimeter runners, just a really really impressive kid. And Philip Dorsett's a receiver as well. They've got some guys in the offensive line, some defensive players. They're always going to have some some talent there. They've got a Duke's got a safety, Jeremy Cash, who. Uh, it was really intriguing because he's 6'2", and they kind of play him over the tight end, and he's one of those hybrid guys that can, can, that can run a little bit. So he'll be an interesting player to, to study in the future as well. All right, so that about does it, Greg. Thank you, as always, for joining us here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Let's get to my interview with DraftInsider.net's Tony Pauline. Joining me now on the Eagle Eye in the Sky football podcast, really the first repeat visitor to the podcast, Tony Pauline. Tony, how are you today? I'm good, and thanks for, uh, thanks for having me back again. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Tony uh, is the, the number one guy, especially this time of year. You know, no one's focused on the NFL draft. None of these uh, other you know, so-called experts and analysts are really kind of focusing on what NFL fans are flocking to in the months of March, April, May. Tony's got his ear to the grindstone. He's getting out there and getting all the latest breaking news. And, Tony, a lot of these underclassmen running backs are starting to pick up steam. What are scouts saying about this upcoming running back class? Obviously, the, the junior ranks and redshirt sophomore ranks loaded with talent. Yeah, very, very excited about it. You know, there's a belief out there that, you know, teams should not select running backs in the first round. They can get a good running back in the second or third round and then basically run him into the ground for three or four years. That may be tough to do in April of 2015. I mean, you've got three outstanding, four outstanding running backs uh, at the top of the list, they're all underclassmen, as you mentioned. I mean, these are guys, Todd Gurley of Georgia, who 
everyone says he's out the door, and why not? I mean, he's proven himself, you know, not only be a big interior back, but the speed, the returnability is just increasing his draft stock. Melvin Gordon of Wisconsin, the fourth-year junior, who gave serious consideration to entering the draft last year. He's had some brilliant moments this year. T.J. Yeldon of Alabama, who you know, has been productive since he was a true freshman in Alabama. Running backs have a tendency to leave school early. Uh, the sleeper of the bunch is Jay Ajaye of uh, Boise State, who scouts really, really like. Uh, all those guys right now, great as most of them first-round picks, if not first-round picks, top 40 selections. So, you know, with, with the running back position really being void of numbers in the first round the past couple of drafts, I think April the 15 can basically stop that trend because you're going to have a couple of very good ball carriers, well-rounded ball carriers, I mean, guys that can catch the ball out of the backfield, uh, running backs that can pound it on the inside but also have the speed to turn the corner that are going to be very early picks, if not first-round choices, definitely top 40 picks. So a lot of excitement centering around that class. So obviously these guys, while there's a good chance that they will declare, none of that becomes official until January. Sticking with the senior class, Amir Abdullah from Nebraska, how much has his performances over the last couple of weeks, how has that improved his stock? Well, I think it's helped them. The problem with Abdullah is a couple of things. Number one, Nebraska running backs you know, don't, have, don't really uh, turn out to be as good in the NFL as they are on the college level. Abdullah's uh, a little bit small, especially compared to the guys that I just mentioned. The problem with Abdullah is, you know, is he a feature ball carrier? Although that, you know, that definition of feature ball carrier has changed in the NFL the past couple of years. I think it definitely has helped him, but he's got size deficiencies. He's got some limitations compared to the top guys. I, I think he's probably moved into the uh, what would have been the second day of the draft. We're going to have to wait and see how the second day of the draft uh, is structured moving forward. But he's definitely moved into the top 100. It's just a matter of, you know, he's going to have limitations because he's not that big, not a real good interior back on an every-down basis. Tony, as we prepared for this interview, you told me that you were hearing some things from more underclassmen out west in the Pac-12. What are you hearing? Yeah, you know, now you get a good idea of, uh, of who is really leaning towards entering the draft, although no final decisions have made because of their talks with agents, the family talks with agents. And really I'm hearing a lot of defensive players from the Pac-10, as you said, very likely to enter the draft. Obviously Leonard Williams. You saw that uh, performance against Stanford basically on one leg. You knew he was a really good defensive lineman. That performance against Stanford showed the type of heart that he has. He's a top, likely a top-10 pick, maybe a top-6 pick. Uh, for all intents and purposes, I'm hearing he's gone. You go out to Washington, Shaq Thompson, who uh, is being compared to Ryan Shazier of Ohio State, the underclassman who went in the first round in style and stu substance, although they played different positions in college. Shaq Thompson of Washington, basically I'm hearing he's also out the door. So there's another, line, uh, another defensive player from the Pac-10 that's going to enter the drift, as will be Alex Carter, the cornerback from Stanford, who I wrote about this week. His dad was a former first-round pick. Uh, for, by the Washington Redskins. His dad now works for the NFLPA. Carter is moving up the ranks. He's got terrific size. He's a very good athlete, really starting to develop his ball skills, starting to develop the ability to make plays with his back to the ball. That was prevalent this past weekend against Washington. And Washington State, defensive tackle, defensive end, maybe a two-gap end, Xavier Cooper, a guy that's showing the ability to consistently make plays behind the line of scrimmage, force the action. I'm also hearing that he's basically out the door after this year. So those are four top players, top players, guys that are going to go in the top 75 selections. 
from the Pac-12 on the defensive side of the ball that I'm hearing will enter the draft after this year. Isn't it crazy, Tony, how obviously the SEC and the Big Ten have always kind of been the, the two conferences that have really put out the most NFL talent? i got to say, over the last few years, the Pac-12 has just grown. Not just They've always had the top-end talent, but really from the bottom up. I mean, so much more depth is coming out of that conference, and there's a lot of seniors as well. One of the guys that was on your risers list this week, Washington nose tackle Danny Shelton, uh, really one of those prototypical guys that you want to play inside over the center. What is his value like at this point in the, in the draft process? Well, I, I mean two things. Uh, from a football standpoint, a lot of people like him. I mean, he's a guy who plays like his hair is on fire, uh, <laughs> makes tackles against the run, can get behind the line of scrimmage, holds the point, you know, creates opportunities for his teammates as well as making plays on the ball. I uh, hear he's got some character issues which may push him down. So when you're looking at him from a player perspective, he's probably in that second-round area if the personality and the off-the-field issues pan out. It'll be interesting, uh, interesting situation to follow, interesting story to, uh, to follow. He, he's definitely a player. He's a gamer. I mean, he comes every Saturday, and he plays hard through the whistle until the game is over, which is why scouts like him. But there's a lot there with, with Shelton. With guys that play that position now, obviously we've seen a lot of these nose tackles come out in recent years and have kind of fallen down the board based on what the, the pre-draft projections were. Uh, last year you had Lewis Nix out of Notre Dame. The year before it was Josh Chapman in Alabama. Are these kind of guys, what, what, is, uh, what is Shelton's ceiling here in terms of his official draft status once it comes to draft day? Yeah, well, those two guys had, uh, had, uh, knee, uh, had issues with their knee going into the uh, draft. Uh, Nick's was a little bit more minor, but Nick's also come, you've got to remember, Nick's came off a terrible uh, 2013 campaign. I think Shelton's got a lot of momentum going. He's just got to keep it going. What is his ceiling? I, I don't think it's top 32. I think somewhere between the early to mid-second round is the earliest he goes. Uh, I'm not a, I don't want to say he's not a great athlete, but I don't think he's got the great upside. Again, the thing with Shelton is, you watch his film and you say, wow, how, you know, this guy's a top 20 pick. Just pay attention to what the stories may be coming as far as off the field issues with him. That's going to be interesting. Shelton is a guy, I just remember, he first stood out to me as a true freshman when I remember watching Alameda Ta'amu, who was in, ended up being a draft pick for, uh, for the Steelers. Now he's an impact player for the Arizona Cardinals and that defense out there. Uh, so Shelton's been on the radar, I think, for, for teams over the last couple of years. Another guy out of the Pac-12, Oregon State defensive end Obum Guachum, a former wide receiver, turned defensive end this spring. I watched the game against Hawaii earlier in the year, and he was very, very disruptive and limited snaps. What have you seen from Guachum? What are scouts saying? Yeah, you know, an incredible athlete, a guy who, who's a high jumper, jumped just under seven feet, two inches, learning the position. And I watched him a little bit this weekend uh, when Oregon State got pounded. But the, the fact is, is, you know, he's learning to become a three-down player. He's more situational player now, great movement skills, explosive, quick, plays with good pad level, really just learning more moves as he goes on. You can see it's there, and you can see he's got the upside potential. Not just a guy that makes plays behind the line of strength, but also moves well laterally. It's one thing to move well in a straight line, but when you're in a defensive line in those positions in defensive front seven, you also have to move well laterally. He shows the ability to twist and stunt, get around the offensive tackles. You know, he's got to continue to improve. One interesting thing with, with, uh, with Obum is, you know, as you know, you go to the senior bowl, they measure hands, they measure arms, they measure wind spans. They don't measure leg length. And the reason I say that is 
Some of the things that make a great high jumper, basically long legs and a high center of gravity, do not bode well for linemen in the NFL at the next level, either, either, either offensive linemen or defensive linemen, because you don't want a high center of gravity. You want to play with a low pad level. Long legs means you, it's usually easier to block, easier to have your legs taken out. But again, as I wrote about him a couple of weeks ago, he's basically being looked at as sort of a lesser version of Ziggy Ansah a track and field athlete who's starting to learn to play football, starting to have some impact on the defensive line. Obviously, as you mentioned, I mean, he plays in the, in the Pac-12, which was a much better conference than, or a much better competition than the independent BYU uh, Cougars played against. Uh, so I think he's a guy who is not going to go as high as Ansa. That's not going to happen. But still, someone who wasn't even on the scouting radar starting the season, as Ansa was, it could go into in that second, third round if he continues to improve shows that he's got the ability to develop into a pass rusher as well as a three-down lineman who can also defend the run. Yeah, I mean, the guy. I just remember watching him against Hawaii, and the guy that he really reminded me of, just the way he moved. Obviously, I'm not saying he's this guy. Just as you're saying, he's not Ziggy Ansah and it's going to go fifth overall. The guy that he reminded me of was Barkevius Mingo, who's in that same class, just in terms of that lean build and his weight is just, just a really sudden mover. Uh, I'm going to be really interested to follow this kid's progress and see where he ends up going in May. I think he's a little bit taller than Mingo, and I heard he's, he's put on a, a significant amount of weight, so he probably has a little bit better growth potential than Mingo, and if scouts are convinced about that, he's going to go higher because they'll, they'll feel that he can develop into that every-down defensive lineman. His, his story is going to be really interesting to follow, and you touched on it. A guy that coming into the season, his grades weren't really, really high, and the, I want to ask you about three quarterbacks, and before we get into what they've done so far this fall, Talk about the, these three guys and what their status was going into the fall go, based off the 2013 tape. That's three quarterbacks. you got Blake Sims from Alabama, who we hadn't really seen at all. Justin Worley from Tennessee, who had an up-and-down junior year, uh, obviously has had some injury issues in the past. And then Brandon Bridge, who's getting really his first crack at a starting job at South Alabama, was an Alcorn State transfer. Where were these three guys on the terms of scouts and teams' radar heading into 2014? Well, Sims was nowhere. I mean, basically because he played behind A.J. McCarron and, and he barely saw any action the past, uh, the prior three years. You know, Worley and, and, and Bridge from uh, South Alabama, they were basically street-free agents. I mean, they all had potential. They all had good, you know, good size, good arm strength, everything else, but they had a very limited body of work. So uh, Sims was not on any of the scouting sheets, and, and Worley and Bridge were basically guys that, you know, well, if they do something uh, good on the football field, that's great, but we're not expecting much as far as scouts were concerned. All right, so now let's move on to what they've done so far in 2014, and we'll start with Blake Sims, a guy, obviously, he's only six foot, he's barely 210 pounds, but he has just done a really, really good job of managing this offense at Alabama, uh, is a really good decision maker, shows that he's got the ability to get the ball down the field, is very, you know, he, has, he was up and down in that opener against West Virginia, missed a couple of those crossing, crossing routes, uh, some of those underneath throws. But I, I'll tell you what, I watched him again against Florida, and he was really, really good against the Gators and a, and a tough Will Muschamp defense. Uh, what, what have you seen and what have you heard for, uh, about Blake Sims from NFL scouts? Well, let, let's compare him to most recent Alabama players, uh, quarterbacks that have come out of Alabama, mainly A.J. McCarron and Greg McElroy. I mean, he's more athletic. He's got a better arm. He can make more of the throws. Uh, he needs some work on his mechanics. He has some upside. 
got kind of a funky build, as you alluded to. I mean, he looks more, when you watch him on film, he looks more like he's a running back or a defensive back rather than a quarterback. And if he's, he, played running back. he played running back for the Tide back in 2011, so that, right. that plays to that. And if he's listed at six foot, it probably means he's more like 5'11 and a half because they always cheat a little bit on those measurements. Uh, you know, he's doing well. The, the questions with him is what are his upside and is his height, his, uh, his size, specifically his height, is that going to be a hindrance? I mean, that is what a lot of teams are going to look at because they don't want, you know, the short quarterbacks. But with, you know, this day and, uh, the day and age of the read option, I mean, he could run, run a read option type of offense much better than A.J. McCarron and Greg McElroy ever could. So he'll get some interest in that area. I think it's going to be really interesting because the, the Russell Wilson comparisons as we move along I think are just they're, – they're going to happen because this kid, he obviously the, the size is there with you know, the comparison to Russell Wilson, but just his ability to just get the ball where it needs to go, be smart with the football. He doesn't really uh, turn the ball over in terms of interceptions. He's had some fumbling issues, which you would, you know, you would be surprised with since he was a former running back. Uh, but really, I've really been very, very impressed uh, with this kid's play as we hit the quarter mark of the season. Another guy, Justin Worley, Tennessee. Uh, like I said, very up and down junior year. What have you seen? What have you heard about Worley so far this year? I mean, has the size, has the arm strength, seems to have the mental capacity to lead the offense, doesn't have a big body of work. I mean, has never thrown for more than 200 passes in a year. Looked good in the Georgia game until he got plastered by Justin Jenkins in the third quarter, which I had uh, written about because Justin Jenkins, the linebacker of Georgia, is a guy who impressed me. I mean, seems to be able to control the offense and do a reasonable job without making mental mistakes. The two things that are going against him is, number one, he's basically playing behind a brand-new te- uh, offensive line at Tennessee, which is why he's getting pummeled. I mean, all those Tennessee offensive linemen from 2013 have graduated into the NFL in one way or another. And unlike past years, I mean, Tennessee, which you know had been a receiver-producing uh, factory for the NFL, they don't have any established pass catchers. They've got some potential stars. They've got some potential dynamite players down the road. But there's no one uh, dynamite guy, one consistent guy there right now, uh, which really is going to hurt Worley. He's got, you know, he's got some upside. Was given a very low grade by most scouts coming into the year. But again, I, I mean, he's a guy that if he continues to improve, get some postseason uh, chatter going about him, maybe get the combine invite. Could fit into that late round. I don't think so, but you know he's a developmental type of guy. Yeah, he really, really impressed me. When I watched that Georgia game this week. Uh, really, just was, with his ability to stand in the pocket, look down the barrel of the gun, and make some throws under pressure. You talked about that offensive line, the only offensive line in college football to not return any of its previous five starters from the previous year. Uh, just a, obviously has a strong arm. Shows the ability to be accurate. Really, really impressed me. He's got some traits that I think NFL teams will like, and nobody's really talking about him at this point. Went back and watched the, the Oklahoma game earlier in the year, and I saw the same thing. So I'll be, I'll be interested to follow this kid and see uh, how high his stock will rise. And the last guy, Brandon Bridge, down in, uh, down in Mobile, Alabama, our home away from home. Uh, what, what have you heard? What have you seen uh, from uh, Brandon Bridge? Well, this guy, as far as uh, size, speed, and athletic, uh, athleticism uh, point of view, even arm strength, he, he's the best of the bunch. I mean, he's the guy that's got the most upside. He, he can make all the passes in or out of the pocket. He can pick up yards with his arm. He can pick up yards with his legs. He's got some decent uh, targets down there at South Alabama. They've got a very good tight end by the name of Wes Saxon, who's rated uh, by NFL scouts. They've got some good uh, pass catchers. The problem with him is, is you know, he comes from Alcorn State. He's got to, you know, get uh, acquainted to the high level of competition. 
needs a lot of work on his mechanics, needs a lot of work on his defensive reads, has a terrible interception ratio, uh, basically forces the ball into coverage, but he's got those underlying physical skills. Here's something to think about. You talk about Mobile being our home away from home. You know, you look at the senior class of uh, quarterbacks, and it's very uninspired. I mean, you got guys like Sean Mannion of Oregon State, Bryce Petty, Baylor. You know, I like the kid from Colorado State, Garrick Grayson, but they're all mid to late round picks. Why do I say this? Well, you know, Phil Savage likes to pull a rabbit out of the hat and likes to uh, surprise people on occasion. And he had a uh, receiver from South Florida invite him to the Senior Bowl, I believe, three or four years ago, just you know, to add some local flavor. So, uh, considering the uh, you know how uninspired the senior class of quarterbacks are, if Ridge is able to you know continue to improve. I wouldn't be shocked if he gets an invite to the senior bowl, which could really help him. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that either, to be honest, because like you said, this, this class of senior quarterbacks leaves something to be desired. Uh, there's a couple guys in this list, and look, the, the Mariotas of the world will be eligible, but you'd be hard-pressed to think that they will go out there and eventually play in the game. So uh, while there will be out, options out there, I would not be surprised to see Bridge or one of these other guys. I, I think Sims will have a good shot as well. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see who those six names finally are once we get to January. Uh, it's not too far away, Tony. It's going to be time to, to be sitting there in Mobile wishing that we could go to the shed. There we, there we go. Looking at my uh, flight reservations already. But, uh, you know, as you know, we, we still got about two-thirds of the uh, college season left, so a lot has to be played out. But, uh, you know, the importance of the senior bowl can never be understated because that is where an area where – you know, sometimes players foolishly decide to pass up, and other guys go, and, and they play great, and they just watch Colin Kaepernick, you know, from a couple of years ago, and we, we can name names, and they just watch their stock just basically take off through the ceiling. Absolutely. Tony Pauline, DraftInsider.net, I appreciate once again for you joining me here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. That's going to do it for this week. Another week in the books. Week five is done. Greg Cosell, Tony Pauline, thanks both of those guys for joining me here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky football podcast. We'll see you next week, Eagles fans.